0: and even on my father's heart we really wanted to hit home kind of in this fall time is really hitting home on biblical literacy so last week i did an attempt at covering the most famous verse rich out of <laughs> ripped out of context which is the do not judge lest you be judged and just to quickly explain that one in case you missed it basically that verse it's not saying hey never have an opinion you know, never, never have any ideas about someone, about right right and wrong. You know, never speak about morality in public. But instead, Jesus is trying to get at the heart of the issue. And he's saying that we need to make sure our hearts are right the way that we look at other people. We have to make sure we're not hypocritical. And we, make sure we, we need to make sure that we are looking beyond the surface. And, and also that we're holding the proper standard, which is God's standard, not our own standard. And then it's ultimately the church's job to spur one, and on, spur one another on to good works, to love our brothers and sisters, to help them, even when they're, they've fallen into sin. And to the world we're called to be the salt of the earth, which means that we're doing our best to prevent evil from running rampant. We're, we're doing our best to prevent the decay of the world. And we kind of landed on why is it that the enemy would try to make this peculiar strategy of trying to convince people that Christians should stay silent, never talk about sin, not engage in the public forum. And that's really just simply to depower us and to try to make us, you know, get out of the way, because the devil does not want Christians that will stand up for what's right and will care about someone enough that they'll even love them back into a right relationship with God. So this morning, I want to look at another very famous misinterpreted Bible verse. Uh, This one's actually a collection of verses, but... Um, For my title, I just took one of them, the the most famous of them. And again, it's ripped right out of context. And it's a whole bunch of false teaching that sometimes will come with it. And wouldn't you know, it has the exact same effect as last week's verse. It it depowers Christians. It's very famous. You've heard it before. It's all over our culture. It's turned the other cheek. So it's, it's, it's used often to say that, you know, that Jesus taught, hey, even when you're being insulted and abused or bullied, you know, just ignore it. Just grin and bear it. And, that, you know, somehow this is going to be a great aid for you. Because what would be really bad is if you responded in anger. So you just need to turn the other cheek lest you do something that's not very nice. That's the way it's often portrayed. And I'd say this fits into one of the common heresies that I see out there. That is, always portraying Jesus as just the nicest guy ever. Just a big old cuddly bear. Cuddly teddy bear, I should say. You know, he's, he, he was someone, he, just, he never offended anyone. He was just the nicest guy. And hence, you know, why us Christians, we should never judge. We always should turn the other cheek. We should never confront anyone, never offend anybody, and just be all around nice people. And what I like to say is that Jesus wasn't nice, he was good. And that he, he responded to every situation appropriately. He gave the appropriate response and he showed a very full range of emotions. And so this portrayal this of Jesus as this very, very passive, I call it hippy-dippy-flippy Jesus, that's a lie straight out of the pit of hell. So what I want you to key in on this morning is that there's an appropriate response to every situation. And that's not always necessarily doing nothing and being ultra-passive and quiet and timid. Because why does the enemy want to make us ultra passive and quiet and timid? Because it makes us very easy targets to be picked on. It makes it it very easy for the enemy to walk all over us and to leave us with all sorts of deep and, and deeply seated emotional hurt and pain. So we're going to dive into this text in question. Rooted in its proper context, and I'm going to really key in on historical context. I didn't use a whole lot of that last week, I'm going to use a lot of it this week. So we can really understand what this verse and this section of verses is saying. So first, let me give you just the basic surrounding context of it. So when Jesus is teaching about this whole turn-the-other-cheek thing, that happens to be right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the same sermon we were talking about last week. So Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people who are largely very oppressed. The average Joe at the time is living under the thumb of the Roman Empire. They're swimming in unfair taxes. And it's not just the Romans that are making their life miserable. It's the civil leaders of the day, the Jewish civil leaders, and also the Jewish religious leaders. Because they're very corrupt. They're not teaching what's actually in Scripture. And they're also adding a bunch of taxes into the mix. So about 97% of people during Jesus' day were suffering in poverty. So a very high portion of Jesus' listeners would be people that are poor, but also people that are slaves, because slavery was very rampant. And there was also quite a, bo- quite a lot of women that would come and follow Jesus' teachings because they were also very severely oppressed under the, the culture of the day. And Jesus was teaching things that were radical that they'd never heard before. That actually gave them dignity and worth. So Jesus begins this famous Sermon on the Mount with the Beatitudes, And a lot of us really just love this section of scripture because it's just very beautifully written. And what's in it is it's really showing that Jesus is gently lifting the head of people that are discouraged. Obviously, there's a lot of reasons to be discouraged. And And what Jesus is communicating is that God sees them in their struggle. He sees them in their pain and he's gonna bless them despite the situation. He looks at their humility and their purity and says, I'm gonna bless you. So that's kind of how Jesus begins This whole sermon is just saying God sees you in your pain, he sees you in your hurt, and he is going to bless you. So key takeaway here, the original audience that Jesus is teaching this turn-the-other-cheek thing to, they're being taken advantage of on a daily basis, and there's seemingly nothing that can be done about their situation. It seems hopeless. They can't trust the Roman authorities. They can't trust the Jewish authorities. Can't even trust the religious leaders to help them out. They're having a very hard time, hence why they're very discouraged. All right, on to the main text here, Matthew 5, um, verses 38 through 42. All right, here we go. Jesus talking here. You have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, Offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your, sh- and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. All right, let's look like kind of line by line through this. First I'm going to look at is an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. So this is actually the shorthand general principle for the law of the Old Testament. Now, people often think when they hear this that the ancient Israelites were going around gouging each other's eyes out and knocking each other's teeth out. And they're like, oh my goodness, that's barbaric. This is actually just a saying. As you could imagine, there's very few circumstances that would lead to someone getting their eye knocked out. <laughs> but basically... Jesus kinda explains what it is that the, the the punishment must mass much must match the injury that's still the exact same principle of justice today the punishment the punishment must fit the crime they just had a creative way of saying that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth why they would say that is because an eye would obviously be a very serious injury something a very serious offense for something to happen and go wrong a tooth not nearly as much that big of a deal so it's saying that whether It's a circumstance that's very serious, or whether it's a circumstance that's not that serious. The punishment must fit the crime. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The scales of justice need to be balanced. Again, that's just the general foundational principle of our justice system today. Where does it come from? The Old Testament. So this is what Jesus is saying. That's what you have heard, an eye for an eye or tooth for a tooth. This is the general principle that we try to even things up. When, when you've been hurt, when someone has offended you in some way, when, um, when they've done something and they've sinned against you, yes, the general principle is we do try to find a way to try to make things even, to make things right, to balance the scales of justice. But here's the thing. You can't actually do that in every circumstance. It's actually impossible. There's a lot of circumstances that are going to happen where you can't bring justice like that. You can't actually balance the scales of justice. And normally in the Old Testament, someone that was an impartial arbiter, a judge, would be the person that would meter out you know, the punishment to a crime. And that's because, as you would know, if you, if, if, if you yourself had to figure out the punishment to someone that had hurt you, you're going to go overboard. You're upset, you're mad about it, you're very emotional about it, and so you're not actually going to seek to even things up. You're going to seek to hurt them worse than they hurt you. So how they would do things in the Old Testament is a judge would kind of decide, okay, how do I make an eye for an eye, a tooth for tooth? How do I even things up? How do I find a punishment that fits the crime? But anyways, what's happening in this time is that Jews obviously couldn't, they couldn't trust the judicial system at the time. They couldn't trust the Romans to bring justice. They couldn't trust their Jewish leaders to bring justice. They couldn't trust the religious leaders to do justice. So what were they doing? They're trying to take justice into their own hands. And then they would try to justify that by saying, hey, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You know, I'm just trying to even things up. And of course, when you're taking that into your own hands, you're not even things up. You're making things worse. So Jesus is saying, don't try to bring justice to these situ- in these situations that he's about to describe in the normative way, because it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. So secondly, here we have, do not resist an evil person. So for this one, you actually have to go into the Greek and figure out what Greek words Jesus is specifically using here. And the Greek word for resist that's being used here actually means armed insurrection. So Jesus is saying in these situations, the answer is not an armed insurrection. Funnily enough, actually of all the Roman Empire, the most famous place for armed insurrections, for trying to overthrow the Roman Empire, is this land of Judea that Jesus is living in. They were the only monotheistic place in all of the Roman Empire, the only place that believed in one God, everywhere else was polytheistic. So they were the one place that really did not mesh at all with what the Romans were doing. And so it was very, very common to protest, to to try to lead rebellions, uh, to try to overthrow the Romans. They did that constantly throughout Israel's history. So much so that after Jesus dies and is resurrected and goes to heaven, a few decades after that, there's more you know insurrections going on. So much of the Romans come in and they completely decimate the temple and they just raise Jerusalem. So at this point before Jesus, they had actually taken out quite a number of towns, completely raised them to the ground. That's what they would do whenever there was an armed in- insurrection of any kind, whenever there was a protest of any kind. Even if, even if it's just one guy, they say, We're going to take your whole village now. That's how the Romans ruled, by fear and just this authoritarian. Um, very vicious, vicious rule. So Jesus is saying, listen, this isn't going to work. This evil that's going on against you, in armed insurrection, that's not the answer. And even just at smaller scale, so if you just think of a, someone that's in slavery, if they violently rebel against their master, yes, slavery is wrong. And so if they tried to violently rebel, you know what's going to happen? They're going to get a licking of a lifetime. They're probably going to get killed. Or if a wife was to stand up against her very domineering, abusive husband, what's going to happen? She's going to get beaten, beat worse. So Jesus is saying, this isn't the answer to the problem. In, in these specific circumstances, violence is only going to beget greater violence. And you're going to see with these stories that we're going to go through, here, these scenarios that Jesus is laying out, violence would actually be a pretty over-the-top reaction. And I also want to make note here that Jesus is not saying here that there's never a time um, for violence. Um, There is specific circumstances, unfortunately, where things can come to that. But in these circumstances, he's describing not the case. All right, thirdly, let's get into turn the other cheek. So we're going to read this very carefully. He says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, so why is it that he has to detail what cheek exactly is being slapped? Well, here's the thing. So right back at this time, Everyone was pretty well right-handed. And the left hand was seen as unclean. So the right hand is what you would eat with, the left hand would basically be what you wipe with. Okay, let's not get into the gory details there. But that's actually a pretty common practice even today around the world. One hand is the one you keep clean, it's more sanitary, the other one is the hand you get dirty. Personally, I just like to wash them both. <laughs> also, it says the right cheek, being slapped on the right cheek. So, at this time, backhand slaps were very common. That was a type of an insult. Have you ever heard the saying, that felt like a slap in the face? When someone insulted you, you say, that was a slap in the face. Do you remember know where that comes from? The Bible. So, let's just picture this. The only way to get slapped on the right cheek, by a right hand, of course, because no one would be that gross, <laughs> Right hand, right cheek, it's going to be a backhand. We could get a volunteer up here for me to do a demonstration. I don't know, is, is, there, is there any husbands here that need to be set straight? No. Anyways, so it's a demeaning insult. And as you know, if you, if you follow any racket sports, you know a backhand is less powerful than a forehand. So it's just kind of like, a, it's just an insult. It's like, get in line, you peasant. That's what the Romans would do to the Jews. They'd smack them on the back of the right hand on the right cheek. Very common. Slaves by their masters. That's how their masters, the masters, would keep the slaves in line. Backhanded them on the right cheek with the right hand. Even husbands would do this to their 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 wives. Backhand them. Again, women were treated absolutely terribly at this time. And backhanding somebody was all about shaming and degrading them. Less about hurt, physically hurting them. Because if you wanted to physically hurt someone, you'd, you wouldn't slap, you would use your fists. I'm not giving you any um, ideas here, hopefully, of how to hurt somebody. <laughs> but slapping someone with your backhand at that time, it was all about demeaning them and degrading them and trying to make them feel lesser than and trying to put them in their place as an inferior if you were to slap someone with your forehand, the regular way, oddly enough, this is a weird cultural thing. That was only something you would do if someone was your equal, and you wanted to insult an equal. But if you wanted to demean somebody and to declare that they were inferior to you, use your backhand. We have a lot of weird cultural things today. They had a lot of weird cultural things. I'd have a hard time explaining TikTok dances to you know, the people of Jesus' day, but that's a thing today, evidently. Back and then, slapping people in these ways was a thing. But anyways, so when Jesus is saying to offer your other cheek after somebody backhands you, after somebody backhands you and hits your right cheek, so you'd be turning your head, actually to the left side, what you're doing is you're showing your, you're showing your oppressor that I'm not inferior, in fact, I'm equal. You're defiantly showing your oppressor I'm not going to be ruled by dehumanization. I'm not going to be ruled by fear. I'm not going to be ruled by humiliation. I'm not not a secondary human in any way. They're not goading them into hitting them a second time because the superior wouldn't want to proclaim that this is, in fact, my equal. I'm not going to treat them like an equal. So we're not going to hit them again. So what Jesus is doing here is he's teaching oppressed people how to stand up for their valuable identity, their extremely valuable identity in God, and not let anybody degrade them, to not let anybody tell them that they're inferior, inferior that they're lesser than, that they're, they're not valuable. And as you would imagine, if you would do this and someone is trying to degrade you, someone is trying to humiliate you, someone's trying to put you down, and instead you just raise, kind of raise yourself up in defiance and show that that's not going to work that would leave the oppressor stunned. Realizing that their attempt to shame you and degrade you doesn't work. They'd realize they don't even possess the ability to rule you by fear and shame. This is basically showing a bully that you won't be picked on. doesn't mean you have to break the bully's nose, but it's showing that, listen, I'm I'm not going to be dominated by you. You can't instill fear and shame into me. It's this type of defiance, actually. And it's, it's showing that this situation that I'm in is not going to have power over me because I know who I am. And it's asserting your own dignity and asserting that you're valuable of respect and that you deserve to be treated as an equal. So that's actually a pretty powerful statement that is being made. Again, normally it's, uh, the way the culture likes to describe it, it's often people that don't at all read scripture that will say, "Turn the other cheek," and they'll talk about it as if it's, "Oh yeah, you know, just just be super nice, just, just take the insult, um, take the abuse." It's not at all what Jesus is saying. It's actually asserting your own dignity and respect and putting an end to the abuse. Here's the next one: Give your coat too. So Jesus is talking about in Matthew five forty all about being sued in court and that people are taking your shirt. And Jesus says, actually, just give them your coat, too. So if you ever colored a lot of Bible coloring stuff growing up, (laughs) they'd have kind of an undergarment and an outer garment. So Jesus is saying people will sue you for your undergarment and just give them your outer garment, too. So back in Jesus' day, back in this time, being sued was very, very common because these poor people faced significant debt Again, like 90, 97% of people were struggling with poverty. So their, their creditors would be coming to them looking to take, it, you know, to, to take some collateral. And there was these sharks in the water, these loan sharks, that realized people are in deep, deep trouble. They're in deep financial trouble, and they take advantage of the situation, offer loans they know they, they couldn't get back. And the only thing people could often, when they got to the bottom rung, the last thing people could offer as collateral was literally the clothes on their own back you'll notice when you read Scripture and read through the Gospels, Jesus references lots of different parables of debts and debtors. Again, because it's a huge problem people could relate to at the time. Very debt-heavy culture. Direct result of very, very high taxation by the Romans and made worse by the fact that the Jewish leaders are also trying to get rich after they're being taxed by the Romans. So they're going to tax their own people a bunch too. So there's this extreme taxation going on. All sorts of um, corrupt leaders. So the rich are trying to take advantage of the poor. And th- this, is, this, is what it's got, this is what it's got to. The people are so poor that the only thing that they own is the clothes on their own back. And, and these, these sharks, these people that are trying to take advantage of the situation, that had you know, pretended to be a nice guy and gave them a loan, but then they're coming back to collect. They're even going after people's clothes. The last thing they own, the clothes on their back. So why is Jesus saying, if someone's coming for the last thing you own, they're they're coming for your your undercoat, basically, to give them your overcoat too. Well, here's the thing. If the Jewish person that was poor and was being taken advantage of took their creditor to court about the situation and said, hey, like this is all I have. Again, it's a very corrupt system. Even in today's society, they'd be like, well, you signed the deal. uh, And they would side you know, with the the creditor. So these peasants, they're not going to win any sort of court case. They're not going to get any justice. But they can make a statement about the injustice of the entire situation. Here's another funny cultural thing about Jewish culture here. So nakedness is a very, very big taboo. It's actually more shameful to see somebody naked and do nothing for that person than to be naked yourself. So, if somebody came to collect and they came to you and says, I'm here to take your undergarment, and you said, here, take my overcoat too, and you were left there standing stark naked, it would actually be a stunning protest of the system. It would actually leave the creditor humiliated because it would certainly draw all sorts of attention to what's going on. And it would show everyone that this person here is money hungry and they're coming after the clothes on my back, the last things that I own. This person's taking advantage of a fellow Jew. And so this protest would actually be unmasking the cruelty of the situation. It's unmasking what's masquerading as justice. The creditor thinks that they are just in what they are doing. But this protest of saying, hey, take, my, take it all, take my overcoat too, is actually showing them this isn't justice, this isn't right. What you're doing is wrong. So funnily enough here, this protest of nakedness actually would make the money collector stand there quote-unquote naked and exposed for all to see. It turns the tables on them. So it gives the person that has no power actually have power in that situation. Quite expertly, mind you. Quite expertly. Jesus is a genius. But anyways, let's go to the next one here. Go the second mile. This is actually a very common one you'll hear today. Uh, Just in modern cultural parlance, it comes out, hey, go the second mile. Usually what people mean by that is to um, do more than expected of you, that that's a good general principle to live your life by, do more than expected of you. And this one isn't all that bad. Um, But again, it is ripped out of context, though. So Jesus is talking about when a Roman soldier is asking you to carry his gear for a mile, carry it too. This is a very, very common thing in their day. Soldiers marching all over the place. And very common for them to walk through a village and they'd come up to any Jewish people that they encounter and said, here, you've got to carry my pack for the next mile. This is an equipment pack that's about 85 pounds. It's not an easy task. And really, this would be very humiliating because they'd be treating someone as if they're like a pack animal. Again, you can see the, the dominance happening here, the oppressor versus the oppressed in the situation. Roman person coming through and saying, you're going to be my pack mule for the next mile, and you, have, you can't say anything about it. Now, by Roman law, this practice was actually limited to one mile only. You're only allowed to do that to just an average citizen for only one mile, which is actually relatively an enlightened, enlightened for the time, even though the Romans are fairly barbaric in many ways. But of course, if you were in a situation, you would not be enjoying being treated like a pack mule, to be treated essentially like an animal even though you're a living, breathing human being made in the image of God. You wouldn't enjoy someone coming up to you and and, and just demanding that you have to now carry this 85, to drop everything you're doing and now carry this for a mile. And they live in a desert climate. It's hot over there. Would not be an easy thing to do. So what was very common is when a, a Jewish village heard a Roman you know, battalion or whatever was on its way through, the whole village would evacuate and run, run to the hills they would hide because they did not want to go through that humiliation of being forced to carry this 85-pound pack and, and just be all brought into you know, being treated like a bunch of pack mules. So they didn't want that. And again, when it comes to the whole, it can only be one mile thing, if a Roman soldier broke that rule, They would be punished by their commanding officers, even to the point of being flogged. Of course, Jesus knows this. So Jesus knows that a violent response against a soldier, not a good idea. If a Jewish person tries to fight back against them violently for trying to make them carry the pack, you're not going to do that when there's a whole army of Roman soldiers standing there. (laughs) That's a good way to get yourself killed there. And again, it wouldn't just be you they would punish, they would take out your entire village. That's how severe they are. So Jesus is saying yeah, this isn't going to work. The violent insurrection, not going to work in this situation. But again, just with all the other ones, he's showing these peasants, these oppressed people, how you can assert your dignity as a human being and gain control of the situation. So imagine imagine the scenario. Roman soldier comes up to a Jew and says, carry my pack for the next mile, this 85-pound pack. Put it on and puts it on you. But then the peasant carries it, a pa- carries it for a mile and then says, hey, let me carry it in another. I'll do it. Yeah, no problem. I'll do it. No problem. The soldier would be put in quite the awkward position because they were like, what's going on here? Is this, is this peasant trying to say that they're stronger than I am? Are they being really nice? Or are they trying to create trouble for me? And they, they would actually be begging the Jewish person to give me back my pack, give me back my pack. I don't want to get in trouble with my, my, my commanding officers. I don't want to get flogged. Please give me back my pack. The Jewish person, no, no, it's fine. It's totally fine. Let me carry this another mile. They'd be like, please don't. I can't. You can't do that. And it completely upends the situation. I can imagine Jesus himself doing this because he'd be, he's just funny like that. So the soldier initially would come in a situation thinking they're going to dominate, they're going to bring fear, they have this sense of superiority. But then the response that Jesus is teaching is to completely flip that around, and then the soldier would be left feeling this confusion and even a panic. So again, the whole situation is turned right around. So yes, yeah, it's not about going above and beyond what's expected of you. It's not about killing someone with kindness, quote-unquote, or being super pious. In this circumstance, it's about teaching people who are oppressed how to assert their dignity, how to show their worth, and how to neutralize a very horrific practice that was going on throughout the empire. We're going to start to wind down here. So what's some of the takeaways of, that, that we're getting from this? Here's something that's missed. It's missed all the time. Very common for this to be missed. You notice in all of these circumstances... The oppressor, the person committing the evil, they're confronted with their evil and they're also given an opportunity to change. See, Jesus came not just for the people that are oppressed, for the lower classes, for the peasants. He came also for those in power. He came for the powerful and the poor. He came for the oppressed and the oppressor. See, this is biblical justice. God wants every single one of us He wants to rectify all these situations and wants to win everybody to him. So in all of these circumstances, turning the other cheek, giving your coat, offering to carry the gear another mile, they're all examples of confrontational love. We were kind of talking about that last week because love actually confronts. Love does not allow evil to continue unchecked. Love brings people to a place of repentance Notice in all of these circumstances how that would give an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come in and begin to convict the person of what they were doing. It's actually the Holy Spirit's number one job to bring people into repentance. And so in these circumstances, we're kind of following the way of love. That's what Jesus is teaching here. Give people an opportunity to repent. And... Listen, there's ways to confront people about the evil that they're doing. That doesn't mean breaking their nose. It doesn't mean dragging them behind the church and giving them the old one two. There is ways of confronting people and doing it in a a way that actually allows for repentance to happen, that allows for an apology to be made. But pretty well any any confrontation, yeah, it is going to be kind of jarring. Sometimes it'll even be a little bit embarrassing. And sometimes showing someone that they're not treating you right doesn't make them feel all warm and fuzzy inside. However, it is a necessary confrontation for their good. And it is possible to do things in ways that limit damage, that limit causing offense. And again, Jesus was saying, there's extreme ways of reacting to the situations, and they're not going to work. So he, he, he taught kind of neutralizing the evil of the oppressor without actually destroying the oppressor. And again, there is for these circumstances, there is obviously very extreme ones that are out there too. But anyways, if you notice in any of these situations, if the Jewish person would have just responded by letting loose an uh, absolute tirade of, of words, of mean words even, they said, you're a terrible human being, how could you be doing this to me? How could you be treating me as, le- if, you, if you had that kind of response to things, well, there's, there's going to be no <laughs> repentance or reconciliation in, in those moments. But Jesus was showing a way that you can stand up for your dignity, you can stand up for your worth, and still leave the door open for repentance. Uh, today, there's, there's been quite a lot of movements about social justice, and what I would say time and time again is, biblical justice is radically different than social justice. Because Jesus is so radical that he wants to see everybody saved. Those in power and those being oppressed. Jesus' is teaching us that we even love our enemies. You won't see the world preach that. Just as much as Jesus wants to see these peasants, these Jewish peasants that are having a hard time set free of their sin, he also wants to see those Romans. He wants to see the slave owners, he wants to see these domineering husbands, he wants to see them set free from their sin too. Interestingly enough, the early followers of Jesus really took this teaching to heart. And these Christians did not lead these armed insurrections, they were under the, under the thumb of Romans for a, a, multiple hundreds of years after this. Even to the point they were being hunted and killed, strung up in the streets and and basically Used as street lights. They were burned at nighttime. They were thrown into you know, the gladiator pits. The oppression didn't cease for, for a very, very long time. But instead, as they continually stood up for their own dignity, their own humanity, and they began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, it led a social revolution in the Roman Empire that led to basically millions of people becoming Christians people that were absolutely powerless, outgunned and outmatched according to the world standards, led a revolution that changed the world. Didn't need a single sword to do it. So it can be done. It can be done. We can stand up for what's right. We can stand up for our own dignity, our own humanity. We can stand up for our own worth and we can do it in a way that leads people to Jesus whether they are people committing the sins against us or whether they're people like us maybe that are struggling in some ways. But again, it can be done. Takeaway number two, kind of the bigger one here, kind of the general principle that I see throughout all of these scriptures is what I would term a holy tenacity. So Jesus is teaching these people not to let their external reality dictate their internal one. He's teaching them just because this is the situation that is going on, just because you are being treated, that you're less than human, that you are inferior. It doesn't mean that you actually are. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to actually take all of that in and let it affect you internally. You need to know who you are. So he is teaching people how to liberate themselves from having a mindset of inferiors, having a mindset of slaves, having a mindset of victims, or having a mindset of being a peasant. And he's teaching people to see see themselves through the perspective of heaven. Through the eyes of heaven, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, male or female. You're a child of God and you are absolutely beloved. And you have a worth that can never be taken from you. With God, you're always someone special. You're always someone that has the utmost value and worth. And this view of yourself that comes, from, that comes from heaven, that comes from God himself, that should dominate your thinking, not your standard that you live in according to what the world says. Not your socioeconomic level. Not your popularity level in school. Not your IQ. No. What does God say about you? That is your value. That is your worth. That is who you are. And when you know who you are, you can see all sorts of situations radically differently. See, we're not to be made into the likeness of our situation, but rather to be made into the image of Jesus. Too many times we allow ourselves to be made into the image of our situation. We allow our situations to dominate our thought life, to dominate who you know how we think of ourselves and even how we think of others and what Jesus is teaching here is you don't do that and we're being made in the image of Jesus we see ourselves through heaven's eyes we're being made in the image of Jesus who by the way is a conquering king so we want to live as if he's in charge we want to live as if anything is possible and Jesus wants us to live to break the demonic cycles of humiliation, shame, and injustice. We're not in this world to let evil run run over, to run over us. No, we stand boldly in the face of oppression and we proclaim that the goodness of God is all over our lives. We don't have a victim mentality. We don't, we don't have a woe is me mentality. We don't mope around whining about everything that's gone wrong or about our our situation in in this life. We do not define ourselves based on the evil that has come against us and the injustice that has come our way. No, we define ourselves based on what God says about us and who we are in him. God wants us to have this attitude where we survey the situation, we survey the battlefield, we can look at all sorts of destruction and chaos, we can see all sorts of attempts of the enemy to drag us down, to make us feel lesser than, to steal our faith and our hope and our love. And instead, we can look at all of that. We can look at all that has come against us. And, and we can stand up and say, devil, I'm still in the game. You might have thrown everything that you have at me, but it's not enough. Because I have some holy tenacity in my veins. <laughs> I wasn't born to lose, I was born to win. I'm on team Jesus and he has never known defeat. So in any situation you're in, no matter how badly the odds are stacked against you, you realize it's not you that's in trouble, it's the odds that are in trouble. Because you have Jesus on your side. You're a child of God. And no matter the situation... You can plunder hell and populate heaven. So no matter the situation, what Jesus is teaching here is you need to know your worth. You need to know your God-given value. And that will radically alter how you see the situation. You will not see yourself as a victim anymore, but you'll see yourself as the one with the power. Because the power that comes with Jesus, the, the same power that rose Jesus from the grave, that is far more powerful than any riches the world could ever offer. That is far more powerful than the greatest position you could ever achieve. You know, a CEO of some multi-million, billion-dollar company. That's what, you, that's what you walk around with, the same power that conquered the grave. I want to end with this, Second Timothy 1.7. I think this whole turn your other cheek teaching it very much so lines up with Paul's teaching here when he's trying to encourage Timothy. Timothy again, he had a very hard life that he was living. Pretty well illegal to be a Christian. They're killing Christians. Very scary situation. He's struggling with fear. And so this is what Paul says to him, reminding him in Second Timothy 1 7, for God has not given you a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline, or the versions would say a sound mind. There's a way to sum up the whole turn-your-other-cheek teaching. I think that's it right there. God has not given you a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Remember who you are. Remember who God says you are. Remember what he has put within you. Because that can turn the tables of any situation. And even going back to the original context Jesus is teaching in, if you would have told those Jewish people in a, in a couple hundred Years, this whole empire that's oppressing you is going to experience mass revival and it's going to turn to Jesus? I don't think they would have believed you. It would have been very hard for them to picture this massive pagan empire turning to Jesus. That's exactly what happened, and the world's never been the same since. So big things can happen. Whatever situation, trust God with that and know your worth. So we're going to end in prayer here. I'm just going to say kind of a general prayer, but if you want specific prayer for anything whatsoever, um, we would love to, I'd love to pray for you right after the service. You can just come up and pray with you. But uh, we'll just seal this, this service in kind of just a general prayer here. So if you can just bow your heads. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that it just speaks to our soul that it can cut through all sorts of chaos and confusion and bring clarity. So God, as we think of this selection of verses that's often confusing to many people, we thank you, God, for this this clarity that can come just by spending some time studying it. And God, I pray that this is going to find a resting place in everybody's soul. And they're going to remember that the big takeaway from all of this is remember my worth Remember the dignity that I walk in as a child of God, a beloved child of God. May everyone remember to see themselves through heaven's eyes. And God, I don't know all the situations that people are in, but I know that there's probably some situations that are pretty tough, that aren't looking so good. There's maybe situations where people are even feeling powerless, that it looks like things aren't going to change. They're just going to get worse, and there's nothing that could be done. So God, I pray for people in those positions are even going to have that holy tenacity rise up within them. This belief that you can do anything, that the impossible is possible with God. And God, I pray that the situation wouldn't define them, but they would define the situation. They would define it Via your perspective, not the world's perspective. So, God, I just pray for hope. Whatever, whatever people are facing down, whether it's a, a bully at work or it's, it's someone that has maybe uh, taken advantage of them or uh, abused them in, in, in certain ways, God, we just pray for divine strategy and guidance. God, we thank you that Jesus is a creative genius as it was exemplified in this section of Scripture. So God, we just pray for that divine genius, divine creativity even, to help us walk through these situations we find ourselves in. And God, I pray that you would even guide us in responding in such a right way that it opens the door for repentance. As hard as it is, God, for us to love our enemies, I pray you'd help us with that. And you'd help us restore them to a right living with you, to a right standing with you. Because God, it is your hope, it is your dream, it is your plan to see every tribe, every tongue, every nation. You wanna see everybody come and be reconciled to you. And God, would you just use us as your instruments? And God, I pray, we'd even be surprised at the people that would show up here in church. The people that would come and, and, and lay it all down and repent and turn for their wicked ways and then go all after you, full steam ahead. So God, I pray you'd even just speak to those people here that are they're in those kind of a circumstances that are having a really hard time even loving their enemies. If they're having this feeling of really wanting to take justice into their own hands. I pray, God, that you would just kind of let the air out of that hot balloon right there. You take some of that pain and that tension away and just even replace it with a supernatural love that surpasses understanding. So God, I pray you're gonna seal this this teaching today. And I pray your God you're even gonna speak beyond this morning and continue to speak to people's souls and guide and direct them. In your name we pray, amen.